Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. Maria Pearson was born in Springfield, South Dakota in 1932. She was a member of the Turtle Clan of the Yankton Sioux Tribe. In spite of having little formal education, she became an influential actor in policymaking and even in the modern practices of archaeology and anthropology. She's known as the founding mother of the modern Indian repatriation movement. And today we'll explore her life and her legacy. My first guest today is Larry Zimmerman. He's an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue. Hello, Larry. Hi, how are you today? Great. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. And I'd like you to help us understand the moment when Maria Pearson really became galvanized by what she saw as maltreatment of Native Americans in this country. And I want to go back to a moment in 1971 when a highway crew in Iowa uncovered the bones of 28 people. Can you describe what happened? Sure. Uh, There was an excavation going on with the relocation of Highway 34 coming off of Interstate 29 just west of Glenwood. Uh, There had been a cemetery there that was part of the town of Pacific Junction, Iowa, back in the uh, late 1800s. And there were quite a number of uh, um, non-Indian pioneer period graves there that had been uh, disturbed or were going to be disturbed by the highway. They were scheduled to be taken out by the morticians from Glenwood, Iowa. And uh, as the excavations were going on of the the site and those remains, they um, uncovered some Native American remains on the edge of the site. And uh, the Native American remains were pulled out of the ground and taken back to the archaeology laboratory in Iowa City uh, by the state archaeologist then, Marshall McCusick. John Pearson, who was Maria's husband, was uh, part of the Iowa DOT and found out about that. And one of the things that he said, um, I guess, when he got home that day was, uh, honey, uh, you're going to be pretty mad, and uh, told her about that particular um, excavation of the Indian remains being taken back to Iowa City and the the, uh, non-Indian remains being uh, reburied right away in Glenwood. And Maria got very angry about unequal treatment of the remains, and uh, that set her into action. And uh, then she set up a time, uh, I guess, to uh, go into um, then-Governor Ray's office and uh, try to meet with him. Well, and, and a lot of us get angry about various things, but clearly this was a moment when she decided that she had to act. That's correct. And had she been politically involved before that? Uh, not so much. Uh, she'd been uh, um, um, involved with her family. Uh, she she talked often about uh, um, her grandmother saying to her, uh, someday you're going to have to stand up for your people. And uh, this is the time I think she um, told me once that she decided she had to do that. Uh, she certainly had been involved with uh, some of the American Indian activism that was going on in the late 1960s, and some of that was aimed toward um, archaeological sites and archaeological excavations, but uh, not so much at that moment in terms of 
the um, treatment of human remains, but mostly archaeology in general, and, and that was uh, certainly part of it. When she decided that she wanted to do something, did she go straight to the governor? Is that, was that her well, route? That's that's what I understand. That's the story she told pretty often. She uh, put on her regalia, um, her traditional native clothing, and uh, went into the state capitol building um, and I guess met with the secretary of the um, governor and said, I'd like to see Governor um, Ray and talk to him about uh, getting my people back. And I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but uh, I understand that um, uh, the secretary told him, uh, her her that she wasn't, that, that, I'm sorry, the governor wasn't there. And at that moment, she saw the governor peeking out from behind some um, sort of um, panel um, down the hallway a little bit. and, And then at that point said, well, I see him right there. So I'd like to talk to him. And um, I guess he called her in, and they started chatting about it. And uh, she, she uh, once said, um, the governor asked her, well, uh, um, what do you mean, can I get my people back? And that, I guess, was the start of a long conversation between them. Well, certainly. And I want to bring Dwayne Anderson into the conversation now. Dwayne Anderson is a former Iowa State archaeologist, and, and Dwayne is on the line with us today from his home in Arizona. Hello, Dwayne. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. Glad to be here. And you were not the state archaeologist in 1971 when these bodies were exhumed and the Native American remains were sent to the office of the state archaeologist. You took over shortly after that. Can you describe for me the controversy um, in the archaeological community about what should be done with Native American remains? Well, it was pretty much generally felt at the time by most of the archaeologists that uh, the uh, graves were open for scientific investigation, that they had a right to do this, uh, and that uh, the Indians shouldn't bother them. They didn't feel that there was any real close connection between modern Indians and the ancient people, and uh, just uh, uh, pretty much opposed any efforts on the Indians' part to uh, get involved. So, in your office, what was the conversation like uh, about this? Was everybody basically in agreement that archaeologists should have access to these remains and, and it was nobody else's business? Well, it's not quite that easy. Uh, as Larry described, the Glenwood Project was in 1971. I started as a state archaeologist in 1975. So there had been a couple more incidents, actually several more in the meantime, uh, that made it pretty clear that there needed to be some kind of a resolution. And all of the archaeologists got together in a conference called the Future of Iowa Archaeology that was held in Decorah early in 1975 and decided that something needed to be done and uh, sort of appointed me, since I was just becoming the state archaeologist, to try to make some connections and to try to work out Uh, some kind of accommodation or understanding uh, before any more incidents came along to make things worse. But before um, that could really get started, there was an accidental discovery of a site near Council Bluffs called the Lewis Central School site. It was on uh, U.S. Highway 275, but it wasn't a highway project. It was on the Lewis Central School site property where an excavation was being done uh, actually using some of the Les Hills deposit as a borrow pit for a building that was being constructed at the school. So here in the middle of, of uh, 
the uncertainty when we didn't even think that any laws covered the ancient human remains. Uh, we had a discovery that resulted in 24-hour police protection uh, for the site. Uh, we had uh, a lot of the uh, looters or pot hunters sort of standing by ready to come in and take anything they could get if they had a break. And we had a number of different Indian tribes represented standing around with their arms folded demanding that something be done to protect these remains. Uh, so when I arrived on the scene, it was already a, a mess, and it was already in the papers, and uh, everybody was all upset about it. And so that's where Maria's uh, leadership really came in, because she was able to work with the other Indians, uh, and they sort of uh, informally put her in charge of trying to, uh, to work with the solution, whatever that might be. Uh, the original plan was to have the county uh, coroner uh, get an undertaker and uh, uh, go to the site and recover the remains and rebury them in a township cemetery. Uh, that, of course, would completely preclude even identifying if they were Indian, uh, completely preclude studying the bones, and uh, leave the archaeologists and any possible information that might come about the past uh, by the wayside. And so uh, when, when we arrived, why uh, Maria walked up to this uh, guy from the funeral home named Cutler, and she said, okay, Cutler, how would you do this? And he said, I'd get a backhoe and a bulldozer, and we'd have these remains out of the ground in no time and get them off to the cemetery. And she asked me what I would do, and I said, well, I told her about dental picks and toothbrushes and whisk brooms and how we would carefully work around the bones and measure and uh, photograph and so forth. So we could document what was actually there because some of the site had already been disturbed and the bones were in pretty bad shape. She turned to me and she said, you're going to do it. And so that was kind of the beginning. Uh, we recovered the remains. Uh, there were 25 individuals identified in the long run from what we called an ossuary. It was 2,500 years before the present. In other words, around 830-some, 860 B.C., uh, so it was an early dated site of the late archaic period, one that was uh, a, a, a site for a period that was very poorly known. And uh, so there was some real archaeological value that came out of this. But at the same time, there was no funding for it, so we had to go to the governor jointly, Maria and I, to get funding to do the excavations. And uh, then we had to try to determine what kind of study would be done they, uh, and Maria realized that until we proved that they were Indians, they didn't even want them. They didn't want to be involved. And so that was all done. The uh, role of the state archaeologist was clarified uh, in the law that was uh, passed just a few months later with uh, approval of the State Historic Preservation Officer, the uh, unanimous uh, consent of the Association of Bioarchaeologists, which was an informal nonprofit group, the State Archaeologist's Office, I think I mentioned historic preservation. And so we, we were in a position then to really resolve any future problems. The law provided for a cemetery to be created for the reburial of remains, so we eventually relocated the remains from the Lewis Central School site to the first cemetery. 
And and the law you're referring to is the Iowa reburial law that was yes. passed in 1976, right? Right. And that's part of Section 305A, which is the section of the code that established the state archaeologist's office back in 1959. And we need to take a short break. We'll get back to that law and how Maria Pearson influenced it, how her influence spread around the nation as well. Today we're talking about the life and legacy of Iowa activist Maria Pearson. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today, we're talking about the life and legacy of Iowa activist Maria Pearson. She's known as the founding mother of the modern Indian repatriation movement. It was because of her influence that the Iowa burial laws were made in 1976. We were just talking about those a moment ago. We'll get into that in a few minutes as well. And then later on. In 1990, a federal law was put into place because of the work that she was done, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. With me today, Larry Zimmerman, an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue, also a good friend of Maria Pearson's, and Dwayne Anderson, who was the state archaeologist back when the Iowa reburial laws were passed. And, and Dwayne, just before the break, we were talking about when those laws were passed in Iowa. And you became a supporter of the Iowa reburial laws. You also became instrumental in helping to shape those laws when you decided that, that you wanted to be a part of that movement. How did people within the archaeological community and within your office react? Well, our office was very small, and they were very supportive of the people who were there at the time. And uh, uh, yet on the national level and even the regional level, if we went to conferences, we would be uh, we would be scolded because we were reburying our database, we were reburying artifacts, uh, we were making archaeology difficult. So it wasn't very popular. Actually, the, the nearer an archaeologist lived to living Indians and in reservations and so forth, the more attuned they were to Indian concerns, uh, more, the more you were uh, in a big city or something like that, but the less, the less you felt the Indians had any say at all. And Larry, can you also said, shed some light for us on, on that time period and on the controversy in the archaeological community? Yeah, it was a, a, a pretty rough time period for a lot of people, both Native and uh, um, archaeologists who happened to support uh, repatriation. I know that... Uh, as Dwayne probably found out, um, um, a lot of us were sort of almost shunned uh, by uh, our colleagues in many cases. Even though we attended meetings and tried to talk with our colleagues about it, 
a lot of people just really wouldn't listen a whole lot. But as time wore on, people began to understand things, and uh, uh, Dwayne may have more knowledge about this than I, but that the Iowa law really influenced archaeologists in quite a number of other states. And, and the Iowa law was the first of its kind in the nation. As far as I'm aware, yeah. Uh, but by the time the uh, 1990 federal law was uh, passed, I think more than 30 states had some level or another of um, treatment of human remains laws that, that covered Native American remains. And uh, I think what was happening was that there was a sort of growing understanding on the part of quite a few archaeologists, their students and others, that it was the right thing to do. Um, and Duane, we talked about when you first encountered Maria Pearson in 1975. Uh, Larry, when did you first meet her? Oh, it probably would have been about that same time. I remember uh, a meeting, maybe Dwayne can clarify this for us both, but uh, it was in uh, Ames at Iowa State, and there was some discussion there that um, I guess uh, Professor Gradwall uh, sort of arranged um, of Iowa archaeologists, and uh, Maria was there and uh, talked with us about um, her concerns. And uh, I know that uh, at that particular time, she and I didn't particularly hit it off because of a project I'd worked on, on in South Dakota that she sort of misunderstood, which that uh, became clarified later for us both as we talked uh, individually. Um, but um, I don't know, uh, Dwayne, do you remember that meeting in, in uh, Iowa State? Yeah, I do. And that was really my first experience to, to see Maria in action. Maria, we we ought to talk a little about her because she she's a, a very complex and interesting character. Uh, most everyone has a boss. You and I, Larry, we all have bosses, but that wasn't true of Maria. She didn't have a boss. She didn't uh, uh, mind taking on anyone at any level. One time she was at my house in Iowa City shortly after this uh, law thing was going on, and she was concerned about what was going on at the federal level, and I said, well, that's something we can't control. And she says, can I use your phone? And I said, yes, and uh, I heard her in the next room saying, I'd like to speak to President Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she got through to him, but I mean, she had my attention. <laughs> so what was, what was your first impression of her, Duane? Uh, well, I was a little bit apprehensive because, uh, you know, she had this reputation for ruling with an iron hand. But I found her to be very open-minded and reasonable, you know, once, like Jill Airy said, once you have a chance to talk about it, it wasn't that she was so closed-minded that she, and some of the activists were, They're, they had one one mission and they were going to do it and they didn't want to hear anything else, and that was true of the Indians as well as the archaeologists. But uh, Maria uh, really took charge, helped to coordinate the uh, Indian committee that was uh, self-appointed by the Native American community. They still have the Indian committee to advise the state archaeologist's office. Uh, when um, Maria heard about a discovery, I would either pick her up or we would meet in the field. She went to countless uh, projects where human remains were, were found. As Larry mentioned, she'd go to national meetings and regional meetings, and she'd usually tell me before we went in, now I'm going to have to say some things and you're not going to like it. <laughs> and so then she'd go and she'd chew me out along with everybody else, and then afterwards she'd come and say, well, that wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> so, so, Larry, did you find her to be um, a little frightening when you first well, met her? At, at the beginning, but once once you sort of uh, uh, 
got to be her friend and figured her out. She she was just kind of delightful to be around, and you just enjoyed watching her push buttons, sort of like Dwayne was hinting. And I think I remember Dwayne a story that she told about you. I think one of the first times that she met you, maybe the governor had told you to go out and talk to her. And she tells me, and I I don't know if it, it's uh, your recollection or not, but she said that this young man appeared at her door in Mar- Marnie. Was that where she lived? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, invited uh, you in and uh, offered you coffee. And you said, oh, no, 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 not, uh, no, thank you. And she said, get out of here. You just insulted me by t- turning down a gift or something of that nature. And and uh, I suggested that for a few moments you were terrified until she started uh, laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she just wanted to give me a hard time. Yeah, yeah, she was she was really good at that. And she would do it not just to us. She would do it to uh, um, Native Americans as well when they sort of uh, uh, spoke out in ways that she didn't think were appropriate. I remember... Uh, uh, at a conference that she was invited to speak at at the University of South Dakota where I was teaching, and there was a, a young um, uh, student of mine who was native, a guy named Bronco LeBeau, and he was kind of um, running the session that he had organized there about repatriation. And he said some things at the beginning that she didn't think were very good, and she said during our break, uh, uh, get that guy and come out in the hallway, and we're going to talk. And uh, she chewed him up one side and down the other about forgetting to introduce the elders and not offering a prayer and a number of other things. And he was just standing there sort of uh, um, burbling like uh, a young man who'd just been chewed out by an elder. And um, he later went on to get a Ph.D. in, in uh, archaeology, believe it or not, and uh, is now with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And he often, I think, was sort of galvanized by his experiences working with Maria. This happened a lot to to, to many of us, uh, uh, including some of the big-name archaeologists. There was a, an archaeologist whose name was uh, Clem Meehan, I think from UCLA. Uh, they were often at each other's throat. And I remember them giving opposite kinds of statements at meetings. Um, and then I remember um, uh, her right afterwards just going up to Clem and chatting and everything else, and they didn't seem to be particular enemies. I remember then when Clem passed away, she she told me, she said, you know, um, Clem and I were often at odds, but I'm really worried about him now because he's passed on to the spirit world. He's not going to be treated too well there. <laughs> All right. We're talking today about activist Maria Pearson and her influence, her life, her legacy. My guests right now are Larry Zimmerman. He's an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue. Dwayne Anderson, a former state archaeologist in Iowa, is speaking with us from his home now in Arizona. And if you knew Maria Pearson, she passed away in 2003, but many people in Iowa knew her and were touched by her. And Larry, once the law was passed in Iowa... In 1976, the Iowa reburial laws, and we've talked about how these were the first laws of that nature in the nation. How did Maria move from the Iowa stage to the national stage? Um, I think it was mostly through her influence, although people knew about the Iowa law and knew about her uh, abilities to speak um, um, very strongly about the treatment of remains, and she was invited to a number of meetings, especially with um, executive members and and others from the um, Society for American Archaeology, which is the the largest body of professional ar- uh, archaeologists in the U.S. And uh, um, was invited to speak at at a number of sessions that they held that were sort of plenary sessions where most of the membership came. Um, 
to hear about it. Um, she was always pretty eloquent when she got up to speak, and she wasn't afraid to say what she thought. Um, she, I think, at some point in time, uh, terrified a lot of those people. But uh, once they listened to her, they understood that there was something more going on here than just uh, the uh, politics of identity or whatever that many people uh, suggested that that it all was. Um, and uh, at that point, she also had influence on a lot of younger Native Americans. I know, for example, that there was a, a, a woman, uh, Jan Hamill, who I worked with later on, who was uh, d- the director of American Indians Against Desecration, uh, which was uh, kind of a spinoff of the American Indian movement. And I know that uh, Jan and Maria talked on occasion, and Jan then became a, a spokesperson as well at the national level and international level. And I think that... Uh, it was Maria's influence as much as anything else on other people that really caused the um, uh, repatriation movement to uh, gain speed. It wasn't a speedy process, though. Oh, uh, no, no. As I, as I mentioned, this, <laughs> this federal legislation, the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, was passed in 1990. It's it's all I think it's all relative in the sense of time. Of course, when you get older, time seems to compress itself a bit, and it seems a lot faster. But um, one of the things that that uh, did occur was that um, she got hooked up as well with the World Archaeological Congress, which was a kind of uh, um, spinoff of another group that first met in England in uh, 1986. And she didn't go to that meeting, but she later on attended a meeting uh, four years later in. Um, 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 South America that um, became a very important meeting for the World Archaeological Congress in terms of passing an ethics code. But the year before that, she actually attended a meeting which was kind of a subset of the World Archaeological Congress out in South Dakota. And uh, that meeting had a couple of hundred people from all over the world, a lot of other indigenous people who I think many of them actually came there to meet Marie as much as anything else because she was on the panel with some people from uh, the State Archaeologist's Office in Iowa to talk about the Iowa law. And it was uh, not too long after that that really the first federal law came about, and that was the National Museum of the American Indian Act in 1989, uh, the year that this um, inter-Congress of the World Archaeological Congress was held. Um, And I think that that a lot of the things that were going on were um, at least partly the result of Maria's activism within the the Society for American Archaeology and the World Archaeological Congress. Um, But just um, a, a sort of gradual, I guess, as, as you would want to call it, uh, a, a growth of uh, the number of individuals who were really committed to the idea of repatriation. I think uh, we also consider, and maybe uh, um, we can talk about it later as well, but what was obvious to a lot of us who were teaching uh, uh, anthropology and archaeology was that a lot of our students picked up really quickly on this idea of repatriation and how uh, important it was to Native people. And uh, they started getting the idea, and I think also then had a lot of influence on their professors and fellow students and others. I need to take a quick break here. My guests are Larry Zimmerman, an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue, and Dwayne Anderson, a former state archaeologist of Iowa. And we'll continue our conversation taking a look at the life and legacy of Maria Pearson in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. 
Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today we're talking about the life and legacy of Iowa. Native American activist Maria Pearson, she was influential in getting really a groundbreaking law passed in 1976, the Iowa Reburial Laws, and her work continued, and she was very influential in getting the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act passed in 1990, a federal act to protect the remains of Native Americans all over the country. With me today, Larry Zimmerman. He's an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue. Also, Dwayne Anderson, a former state archaeologist of of Iowa. And joining us now is Joe Watkins. He is director of the Native American Studies Program at the University of Oklahoma. Hello, Joe. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's wonderful. I, I'm basking in such reflected glory of other two speakers. <laughs> you also knew Maria Pearson. Can you tell me about when you met her? I met her kind of indirectly, both as a young student and as a struggling um, federal Fedskin, if you will, uh, an archaeologist uh, with the uh, Department of the Interior. I was kind of involved with some of the uh, consultations out of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act hearings and got to talk with her a bit. And, you know, as both of the other two speakers have said, she was often scolding but always respectful. Um, we had a few conversations about, well, how the Department of the Interior policies on reburial of human remains was very much uh, Eurocentric and really didn't take into consideration American Indian perspectives. In your career, how have you seen that shift, Joe? Well, um, I myself am American Indian. I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, so it had always been uh, definitely in the middle for me trying to figure out how to do archaeology and yet how to deal with the the double standards. Um, I started doing archaeology in 1968, uh, went to the University of Oklahoma right at the time that Vine Deloria Jr. was chastising anthropologists and archaeologists. So I've seen it shift from a time of anthropologists and archaeologists being very hesitant to work with tribal groups up until now when Many American Indian tribes employ archaeologists, have taken over the management of archaeological resources on their own land. So there's, I wouldn't say there's been a, a total shift, but there's been a continual movement toward uh, a middle ground, if you will. Let's, uh, let's let Larry weigh in on that as well. I mean, obviously the laws have changed about how Native American remains have, are treated in this country. Have you witnessed an attitude shift, Larry, within the archaeological community? Oh, oh, yeah, I think definitely, although there still is a fair ways to go, as Joe um, hinted. Um, I think I'm sort of using the word hinted uh, nicely in some ways. There are still quite a few people who are adamantly against repatriation or dealing with remains. But um, as time moved on, uh, a, a whole number of archaeologists began to work more directly with um, tribal people, uh, both both here and uh, in, 
internationally. Uh, it became a very much an international kind of movement as, as uh, well. Uh, the students, I think, who were coming up began to see that shift, and quite a number of Native American students began to take a look at archaeology again. And Joe was kind of a leader in that. He published a really important book, I think it was based on his doctoral dissertation, that was called Indigenous Archaeology. And that began a kind of transition toward doing what a lot of us now call indigenous archaeology, which is a direct engagement of archaeologists, whether they're native or non-native, working directly with native people or other indigenous people as um, um, collaborators, not as not as uh, um, anything but that. They're, they're partners in the research, helping set research agendas, uh, looking at all kinds of information that um, are available um, to understand the past and, and really trying to understand as well not how just archaeology can understand the past, but also how Native peoples understand the past and use the past. Uh, it really expanded the kinds of uh, awareness that a lot of archaeologists had about how really complicated the past was. Um, um, as we tend to say uh, many threaded and many vocal, many different ways of seeing things in the past. And uh, after that, uh, I think that the number of students getting advanced degrees in archaeology has really increased, and it seems to be accelerating, as Joe can probably uh, say more than I. Well, and, you know, we uh, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned that Maria Pearson didn't have a lot of formal education, although as a Native American woman born in the early 1930s, the cards were kind of stacked against her in the education department anyway. Um, and, and But I have marveled a little bit at how being a mother of six and, and being a woman who didn't have a lot of formal education, how she became so influential in this world. And, and Joe, maybe you can give us a little bit of insight. Clearly, you're a man who you have the Native American heritage, you have the education. But at the time when Maria Pearson was really coming onto the scene, were there many people who had both? There were not. I, at the time, I knew of two other American Indians with an MA in archaeology. There were anthropologists uh, American Indian anthropologists with PhDs, but many were hesitant to go into archaeology. Uh, I became aware of her work initially reading Akwesasne notes, you know, some of the American Indian newspapers of the early 1970s, and it discussed her involvement with the Iowa burial law and and with the movement to try to get equal treatment of human remains. I think that Many of the American Indians involved in archaeology at the time were really hesitant to step outside of the the accepted means of dealing with the the past, if you will, because oftentimes they were made to feel either ridiculed or they were told that they couldn't be an archaeologist if they couldn't be objective. Mm. And the idea was that American Indians had to accept science and reject their tradition or reject science and accept tradition. It was very difficult to, to choose or to actually to negotiate a middle ground at that time. Did you find yourself facing that same challenge? Oh, certainly, certainly. And I remember that I went to school here at the University of Oklahoma, which has a very large Indian population in the state. 
but the archaeologists that I worked under kind of laughed whenever I would post a, a cartoon about American Indians planning on going to Arlington Cemetery and excavating there, and then they would laugh a little bit and then say, well, if those Indians only knew what we did, they would embrace us. And and I kept saying, well, if you only understood what the Indians are going through, you would embrace them as well. Mm-hmm. But it was a time of, uh, as some Indians in the East say, it was a time of hiding in plain sight. Being an archaeologist and being kind of damned by the archaeologists and being damned by the American Indians and and not knowing how to how to try to help both communities come together. It was a difficult time. We're talking today about the life and legacy of Iowa Native American activist Maria Pearson. Before the show today, we were talking about how Maria Pearson is so well-known inside archaeological and anthropological communities and not very well-known outside those communities. She did a great deal of work um, with education in Iowa, helping Iowa history teachers correct their textbooks and and, uh, tell the truth, or at least some of the truth, about Native American events and culture. And she did a great deal of other work as well. Dwayne, what do you think that the general public should know about Maria Pearson? Well, one thing we haven't talked very much about because we've kind of been in the political and legal realm uh, is that she was a very spiritual person. Um, I mentioned being soft-hearted and funny, but on the spiritual side, a lot of times uh, if something came up, why she would say, well, it's it's not a good day. We better not do something today. We better do it tomorrow. I remember one time we were driving. I picked her up in Marnie. We were clear up in the area around Forest City, headed toward the uh, Dubuque. And uh, we turned on the radio, and uh, we heard, because the sky was dark, uh, we heard about tornadoes in the area, and she said, we better turn back. And I said, well, you know, we can't. <laughs> we got a meeting to go to or a reburial. I forget what it was. But she says, no, we need to turn back. And so I decided we'd keep going. And uh, so we watched the tornado as it came along, and it, it bounced along uh, not too far back from the road, tearing up buildings and uh, making a mess of things in general. And we drove out the other side, and she said, well, I think it was meant to be. She said, uh, the Great Spirit approved of us to, today and what we're doing. And so it's just one of those things where she she was, again, I begin this conversation earlier in the and the broadcast by saying she didn't have a boss, but I sort of take that back because the Great Spirit really was the boss, and she she did pay attention. It's interesting, Dwayne, with with what Joe was talking about, how so many Native Americans in archaeology being pressured to choose one side or the other. Do you think that her spiritual side, do you think that that hurt her credibility in no. archaeological communities? No, she never compromised her uh, core beliefs. But she was willing to be practical. She knew that erosion would destroy uh, sites. She knew that uh, construction projects and highway alignments couldn't really be changed, uh, that things had to be done. So she had this practical side that allowed her to sort of mitigate her, her core beliefs, but never abandon them. Larry, what do you want the general public to know about Maria Pearson? 
Uh, golly, when I, whenever I think of Maria, um, I always think of her just delightful sense of humor once she got to know you a little bit. Uh, she she would do things and say things. Uh, she um, would often go visit people at uh, Springfield on the uh, Yankton Sioux Reservation, and she respected her Yankton um, Yankton Sioux roots. And uh, she would drive through Vermilion, South Dakota, where I taught at the time, and she would always delight in saying, we're going to have dinner today at the Cowboy Restaurant. That was one of the few restaurants in the city right along the highway heading toward uh, Springfield. And she would get in there and start telling story after story after story. And sometimes she could have a little body sense of humor, too, and could tell the occasional story that was a little bit over the edge. But she was just always so much fun to be around. And um, you could poke fun at her, and she would take it well. And uh, uh, she was always... uh, Really, uh, also very respectful of of everybody, I think, uh, even those she disagreed with. And I think that was one of the things that allowed her to be uh, so effective in what she did. In your work with both archaeology and Native American studies, Joe, what, if she were alive today, what do you think, what issues would she be working on now? I think she would continue to be working on how archaeologists represent American Indians in the past. some of the the concepts of archaeological cultures have divorced, at least from the archaeological perspective, American Indians from much of their heritage. I think she would be continue to work on trying to find ways to look at the very early people who came to the New World and try to help both archaeologists and American Indians understand that those individuals contributed to the the development of a of 568 different tribes that we know of, and that not one single person can own the past, but that every individual has a responsibility to keep that past a part of contemporary culture. Joe, thank you so much. More than welcome. Thank you. Joe Watkins is director of the Native American Studies Program at the University of Oklahoma. Larry Zimmerman, thank you for being here today. You're very welcome. Larry Zimmerman is an archaeologist and professor of anthropology and museum studies at the University of Indiana, Purdue. And Dwayne Anderson, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Dwayne Anderson, a former state archaeologist from the state of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.